I'm Dr. Robin Roth. And I'm Dr. Adrienne Rosenthal. And together, we are the Booby Docs, our Instagram account where we talk about breast cancer and breast health in an educational and approachable way. We are both fellowship-trained breast radiologists who have been best friends since day one of med school. We work together, we mom together, and now we podcast together. Welcome to the Girlfriend's Guide to Breast Cancer, Breast Health, and Beyond. If you or someone you love has been affected by breast cancer, then this podcast is for you. Each episode, we'll sit down with some of the top breast cancer experts and inspiring thrivers to help you navigate through a cancer diagnosis while having some fun along the way. So without further ado, let's be breasties. Nailed it. (laughs) This podcast is not intended for medical advice. Please contact your doctor with any symptoms or concerns that you may be having. Thank you and enjoy the show. Hey, Breasties. It's Robin and Adrian. Welcome to the Booby Docs Podcast. So this is Dr. Amanda Rivera. She is an attending physician and assistant professor of radiation oncology at Montefiore and Albert Einstein College of Medicine, where we are proud alumni. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Happy to see that I have some fellow Einstein people here. Definitely. All right. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to pursue a career in uh, radiation oncology? Sure. So when I decided to pursue medicine, it was because when I was much younger, my mom actually passed away from gastric cancer. And that's kind of what sparked my interest in medicine and disease and pathology. Once I got to med school, I decided that oncology would be too close to home and maybe too hard. And then at the end of third year, when I happened to rotate on radiation oncology, I distinctly remember I saw this ovarian cancer patient with my uh, mentor at the time, and she was in tears hugging him. She happened to be in remission. And from that instance forward, I knew it was going to be oncology for me. And that's exactly why I went to medical school. I know that you know any particular patient I see on any given day, that may be the worst day of their life. Taking the time to listen to them, to listen to their stories, you know, is what's really important to me. And honestly, for me, it just takes like one patient encounter on a really bad day (laughs) to, you know, to just bring me right back to why I'm doing this. And you bring up a good point that, you know, cancer affects a family. It's not just the individual, it's a family. And beyond that, there's a ripple effect. Exactly. You know, we want to focus obviously on breast cancer. So what breast cancer patients are going to need radiation therapy? So on a broader sense, in a general sense, for an early stage breast cancer patient, let's say, most of those patients, if they opt for what we call a breast conservation therapy, where they keep the breast and they, they opt to get a lumpectomy, where just a small portion of the breast is removed with the tumor, instead of a mastectomy, where the whole breast is removed, In those patients, we very frequently recommend radiation treatment um, after the lumpectomy. There's different situations where we may not offer it, but it all depends on basically the tumor characteristics that come out in the pathology, as well as the imaging, the mammography, the ultrasound from the beginning. What kind of tumor characteristics are you looking for? What makes a, a candidate really optimal for radiation therapy? So we're looking at things like age. We're looking at grade of the tumor, the histology. We're also looking at the hormone receptors um, and the margin status. And the combination of uh, lumpectomy with radiation therapy has been shown to be as effective as mastectomy, right, in recurrence? Exactly. And that's why um, if you don't opt to have a mastectomy, then we strongly recommend, you know, you get radiation after the lumpectomy. There are some cases, just to give an example, like in the case of an older woman, like let's say over the age of 70, that has a very low-risk cancer 
we may look at her tumor characteristics and opt to omit radiation, but that's a very specific case and, you know, would have to be discussed with your radiation oncologist. Okay. And so what does like an initial appointment with you look like? Yeah. So an initial appointment with a radiation oncologist, you know, in the beginning, we'll focus on your history just as any other doctor would focus on your medical problems, family histories of cancer, social history, things like that as well as the history of how you came to find out that you had breast cancer. So we want to know about the mammogram. We want to know about the ultrasound, the symptoms. Um, And then we do a physical exam, similar to what another doctor would do. But when we do the breast exam, you know, we're focusing on the breast tissue itself, as well as the lymph nodes that kind of drain the breast under the armpit, in the neck, and making sure that, you know, we don't feel any other lumps or bumps or things that might be concerning for the, the cancer spreading. And then after we do our physical exam, we'll take into consideration all of the things such as the imaging, the the tumor pathology, what came out under the microscope, um, and sit down and talk with the patient about what their, you know, risk factors are and what type of radiation, um, you know, treatment schedule that they're eligible for. And then we talk about the risks and the benefits of getting radiation treatment, the side effects. And once, you know, we have an understanding and agreement between ourselves, then we'll sign the consent form and we'll actually schedule the patient for a planning scan for radiation. And so in that planning scan, I know, you know, what are some things that you're taking into consideration? I know a big thing is like the heart, right? Exactly. Yeah. So a lot of what we do in radiation oncology is trying to get the radiation to go to the target, which is where we want the radiation to go in an adequate dose, but also sparing normal organs in the area. Um, So in breast cancer planning, we're very concerned about the heart dose and the lung dose, as well as the spinal cord. Over the years, we've actually developed different techniques with uh, different technology um, to help better avoid those organs. One example is something called deep inspiration breath hold. Um, This is a technique where we treat the patients while they're holding their breath. And when we do that, the heart actually tends to move down and away from the chest wall or further away from the breast. And then we have more space to come through with the radiation beams while avoiding the heart and the lungs a little bit better. What's your team look like? As radiologists, we have radiology technologists, front of the house, back of the house, we have our whole artillery. And I know that as a radiation oncologist, you do a lot of the planning, but what's the soup to nuts experience that a patient can expect when they walked through your office doors? Yeah, so this is actually really interesting for radiation oncology. So once you come for your consult and you meet the doctor, after that, you go to your first appointment, which is the planning scan, and that's done by the radiation therapist. They basically uh, will set your body up in the treatment position. Typically, um, you're either lying on your back with your arms up or lying on your stomach, depending on what type of radiation you want to do. And they make little marks on the body to set you up. Once that process is done and we take a CAT scan in that position, those images get sent to the doctor who then draws out the target, which is typically the breast. Sometimes we also need to include the nodal volumes. And then from there, it goes to a team of dosimetrists who are specially trained in basically creating a plan on the computer to get the radiation to go to the breast and avoid the normal organs like the heart and the lung. From there, The plan goes to a physicist and it comes back to the doctor. We look at the dose distribution on the actual CAT scan on the body itself, and we look at the doses going to the target, the lungs, the heart, the spinal cord, 
and make sure that it's within our dose tolerance limits. So what we know those organs can tolerate to minimize treatment toxicity or side effects. Once we approve it, then you're finally ready for treatment um, and you come for the first day you know, for treatment. And then the therapist, the radiation therapists are the ones at the machine who set you up and actually push the button on the machine and say, okay, this is ready for treatment. And so when you come for daily treatment, you get to know the radiation therapist, honestly, the best because you see them every day. But it's quite a behind-the-scenes collaboration. I I had no idea. I, this is the first time I've ever heard of the term dosimetrist. Yeah, this is something like radiation oncology doesn't get a lot of face time in medical school, so it's hard to even get exposed to it if you want to be a radiation oncologist. And then trying to get other specialists to understand what we do is always an obstacle. So this platform is great, and I'm you know so excited that we can talk about it here. So what's a typical treatment plan? How many days consecutively or inconsecutively do you typically prescribe for a standard like situation where someone has just come from the lumpectomy and is getting radiation? Yeah, so in you know the very generic early stage breast cancer case, um, the most common um, types of treatment are a daily treatment of radiation with external beam radiation, typically to the whole breast, ranging from three to five weeks of treatment. And that's Monday through Friday and a weekend. If we can, we try to offer it in three weeks. That's called hypofractionation, uh, where we give a little bit higher dose each treatment um, to end the overall treatment time a little bit shorter. The patient would come in for treatment daily. They can choose the time of day that works for them and is available in the schedule. Most centers will have times from like 7 a.m. until 5 p.m. or 6 p.m. at night that they can choose to come in. You check in, you get put on the machine, and the treatment itself lasts about 15 to 20 minutes. Um, you don't feel the radiation. You don't see it. It's very similar to getting like an x-ray um, in that it's not like a, something that you sense, um, but it is happening and it is working. <laughs> what are some common side effects that you try and prepare your patients for? We definitely talk a lot about side effects in that initial visit, um, and the most common side effect from breast cancer treatment is the skin effects or the dermatitis. Typically, what we see is either a reddening or a darkening of the skin. Typically, second to third week into treatment, it starts. That can progress even to the skin peeling or skin breakdown. You know, I want to preface that with every woman is a little bit different, and I think it's great. We're seeing a lot more of the patient voice and the patient perspective coming into a lot of oncology discussions, um, and I think that's really important because something that may not be bothersome to one woman may be extremely distressful to another woman. The majority of people will get through the treatment with mild to moderate dermatitis that we manage. We actually see patients every week while they're on treatment and check on their skin. We actually do a skin check and we help manage those side effects with different um, types of cream. Aquaphor is a common thing that's prescribed um, to help hydrate the skin and maintain it um, while they're undergoing treatment and in the weeks after. I had a question about a side effect that I always seem to hear on the other end of patients who've experienced radiation therapy that there's a fatigue component. Is it just because the body's getting stressed? What's like the breakdown of why that occurs? So I think it has like a biological basis in that when like the way radiation works is that we're actually causing DNA damage. That's a stressor on the cells itself. And so the cancer cells, you know, will die off, but the normal cells will have an effect from the radiation as well. 
I think that probably all plays into the fatigue that patients experience from the radiation, but it is a very common side effect that we see in all disease sites, actually, that we treat with radiation. Are there any pro tips that you tend to give to patients? There's not much we can do about the fatigue. What we typically say is it feels like you need to take like a nap in the middle of the day, but it shouldn't be a fatigue that you feel, you know, that you're bedridden. Um, it's kind of like a mild fatigue that happens. You know, when people think of radiation therapy, they often think of like external beam radiation. But I know that there are some newer techniques where they could actually just, you could do savvy where you focally radiate within the breast. Is that correct? Yeah, you can do that. You can do um, a form of treatment called accelerated partial breast irradiation, which is what savvy is typically done for. Again, that's a specific situation in a patient with low-risk disease where we feel that just that focal treatment of radiation um, is sufficient. So if someone had a lumpectomy and radiation before and then they get diagnosed with another cancer, is there a possibility to re-irradiate or how do you treat that patient? So we do do re-irradiation in certain settings. If it's in the same area, then you know that's called re-irradiation. If it's somewhere else, it's a little bit easier, but we have to take into consideration what the prior plan was. So if it was done at the same center, that makes it easier. But if it was done outside, we'll actually request the plan to be sent over the digital files. And we look at something called a dose cloud. So on the CAT scan, we can actually see where the dose levels of the radiation went. And we use that and we kind of analyze the normal organs in the area and see how much dose the normal organs got. And that limits how much more radiation we can give. It's not an ideal situation, but you know, if we don't have better options, then we try to weigh the risks and the benefits of re-radiation and, and look at the normal structures first and, and foremost. But if someone does have a recurrence and had radiation previously, then typically you try to encourage them towards mastectomy or not necessarily? It depends on like where the recurrence is and what's involved, but we try to encourage them towards surgery for sure, whether that's you know another lumpectomy or whether that's mastectomy. So in a woman who has, let's say, an implant before her diagnosis of breast cancer, how does it change your management? It doesn't change, like, per se, the, the radiation planning so much, except that we have to consider that there is a risk for fibrosis and something called contracture. You know, that's something that, that is going to be concerning, and we have to weigh, you know, the risks and the benefits. And it's ultimately a multidisciplinary discussion, really, with the breast surgeons and the plastic surgeons about what she wants her breast to look like down the line and then make you know a plan with all the cancer treatments, taking that into consideration as well. So whether she's gonna keep the implant or not, or we need to you know replace it, these are all complex discussions that we have with this, the surgeons. Chest wall radiation, when, there's, when the tumor is sitting on the pectoralis muscle, how do you handle that differently. So in the setting of post-mastectomy radiation, so the breast has been removed and all we have left is the chest wall. Basically, the chest wall becomes our target. Typically, the, the instance where a woman would need post-mastectomy radiation um, is either that their tumor was very large in the breast itself, or they actually had lymph nodes involved at the time of surgery when they looked at the lymph nodes. So in that case, we would have to irradiate the chest wall and all the draining lymph nodes. So those would be the axillary lymph nodes under the armpit, the supraclavicular lymph nodes in the neck, as well as the internal mammary nodes in the middle of the chest. We can eliminate the internal mammary nodes, you know, depending on the, the physician's preference and, and, the, and the patient case. But 
The planning is very similar. The way we do radiation planning for breasts oftentimes involves two fields that we call tangents. So they come from, from one side of the breast, the medial tangent, and then the lateral tangent. And they overlap over the breast tissue over, or over the chest wall. In post-mastectomy radiation, you know, because there's no breast tissue there, it, you worry more about the lung and the heart dose, especially if it's a left-sided tumor. Um, and so we would use, again, different techniques to try and avoid those organs as much as possible. Oftentimes, it's deep inspiration breath hold. Other times, you know, we may need a different type of more complex planning, something called IMRT, which is when we use many different fields, up to nine different fields instead of just two, to get the dose to spread out nicely across the chest wall. I see. You know, I wanted to also talk about breast cancer and cancer in general in the Hispanic community. I know you're very vocal about that. I saw you on Good Morning America talking with Jill Biden and Robin Roberts on Good Morning America. That was incredible. Thank you. It's quite a whirlwind experience. It was not expected. <laughs> we actually have the clip of you on Good Morning America, so roll the clip. Here at the Montefiore <laughs> Einstein Cancer Center, a team of doctors is working to prioritize breast cancer screenings as mammogram rates have dropped as much as 80% throughout the pandemic. Dr. Rivera, the work that you're a part of with the COVID cancer screening research. What is your research showing you? We screen about 41,000 patients getting mammograms every year. And with the pandemic year, that dropped to almost 31,000. And you know, that's disheartening. And we really just want people to get their cancer detected early so that we have more treatment options. 52-year-old Sandra Cruz was hesitant last year and pushed back her annual mammogram. Her doctor urged her to get screened this past April. That's when she learned of her stage one breast cancer diagnosis. And radiation's gonna begin shortly. Yes. But what did you find out recently? No chemotherapy. Oh, oh my goodness. So how are That's you feeling? A yeah, that is, that <laughs> is. No, I feel great, honestly. I was one of those women during the pandemic that had the fear of coming in, getting screened. I, for one, didn't know what COVID was all about, the fear of catching it. So I was one of those individuals that waited until things calmed down. So tell us a little bit about some of the barriers that the Hispanic community faces with cancer. It's interesting. Um, in a lot of cancers, uh, when we look at the Hispanic population, their rates for incidence, like how much they actually develop the cancer, might be lower than the non-Hispanic white community. Interestingly, when we look at breast cancer, we see that the Hispanic community has not benefited as much from early detection and, and, and rollout of mammography and how it's related to decreasing mortality. They have like seen a benefit about 30% versus the non-Hispanic white population is about 42% benefit from the latest statistics. Um, and that has to do, I think, with people not being able to access care or utilize care that's available to them due to financial issues, childcare issues, mistrust in the medical community. Um, I think in the Hispanic community, we also you know, deal with um, an interest in herbal remedies and um, more natural remedies to kind of help deal with medical issues, not realizing that some of those remedies may be helpful, but they're not necessarily bound in, in scientific evidence. And people may not realize that they're actually you know, delaying care and they're kind of putting their life on the line when they pursue those routes. So I think it's a combination of all those factors that make it difficult for people, you know, with socioeconomic barriers to access care. 
it's great in a sense, you know, that now there's a national spotlight on this and there's more research funding being directed towards disparities in cancer care. Working with communities and having this community engagement piece and having the patient voice pulled into these discussions and these efforts is hugely important because we need to hear from the community how we can best help them. Do you feel like there's a stigma in the Hispanic community of carrying a cancer diagnosis? I definitely think there's a stigma. It's kind of one of those things that's like not talked about. People tend to want to talk about happy things. And I don't think, you know, like let's say it's like a family gathering. I don't think people are quick to bring up cancer and want to talk about something so serious. They may feel reluctant to discuss that in front of other family members, other members who are not women. There's a misconception sometimes that, you know, women have done something wrong that caused them to develop the breast cancer, which is definitely not true. And so, you know, I think kind of working with the Hispanic community and like educating people on the natural history of breast cancer and how common it is, is something that could be really useful. What's like your message for the Hispanic community that may be listening? My message is, you know, if you have a new breast cancer diagnosis, um, to advocate for yourself. You want to feel 100% comfortable with your providers and know that you understand the information correctly. The best thing you can do for yourself or a family member is ask questions to the doctors and the appointments so that way you fully understand what is coming. Radiation is just one portion of this treatment. There's so many steps involved in breast cancer treatment from surgery, sometimes chemotherapy, hormone therapy. You know, it's, it's not easy. It's an all new terminology that you've never heard before. And no one's expecting you to get it right 100% of the time after one appointment. So just know that providers are expecting you to have questions. They want you to have questions and you should feel free to reach out to them. And if you don't feel comfortable, you're fully entitled to a second opinion. You can get a second opinion from another doctor who makes you feel more comfortable. Just don't put off getting the care because that's when things get dangerous. I'm curious, over the last couple of years, there have been some obstacles for cancer patients with bringing a patient advocate or a family member that can help them navigate these questions and medical terminologies that are being used. What's your practice like this day and age with COVID and are patients able to bring a loved one or an advocate to your appointments typically? I practice and everybody is a little bit different. Every clinic is a little different. Um, We allow one patient family member to come in for the appointment, provided they're wearing all PPE. In situations where the family members are not allowed or, you know, someone can't make it to the appointment, I always ask the patient, do you want me to call anybody or do you want me to speak to anybody about this diagnosis and your treatment um, and try to reach out in that way? One of the things in radiation oncology, you do a lot of overlap with radiology, What is your radiology training like in your residency? So our radiology training is not anywhere near what you guys go through. Um, It's basically like learning as we go. So we'll learn certain um, like sequences that are important for certain disease sites. So I treat GYN cancers also. And so I oftentimes use MRI of the pelvis and use that to actually plan the radiation in addition to the CAT scans. We basically learn different T1, T2 sequences that are important for seeing, um, you know, certain uh, things that help us define where we're going to aim the radiation. It's a less formal training in radiology, um, and there are some efforts actually within the education space in Radonc to see if we can formalize it more, but it's kind of a learning-as-you-go experience, um, and it's, it's specific to each disease site. For the medical trainees out there, 
what kind of characteristics do you feel like you have that has pulled you in and made you interested in your field? Like what a Harry Potter house would you put yourself in? That's a good question. I don't know if I have an answer to that. <laughs> Definitely a Gryffindor, right? <laughs> I think like, okay, what I say makes a good radiation oncologist is somebody who likes to see patients, likes continuity of care, values taking care of patients at one of their most vulnerable times in their lives. It's scary. It's psychologically distressing. And, you know, you need to be able to communicate with the patients in a way that makes them feel comfortable and trust you so that they, you know, get the treatment that they need. People who are technologically savvy would like radiation oncology because it's always changing. Our machines are always getting more complicated. And the last piece I'll say is people who enjoy research would love radiation oncology because it's a very evidence-based, research-heavy field. Every treatment decision we make is typically based on a large clinical trial that happened. Um, and a large part of our training is actually memorizing those clinical trials and memorizing the data and being able to spit out, you know, like survival statistics, local regional control, things like that. You know, it was interesting. I saw a patient that had undergone breast cancer treatment and radiation, and she like loves her radiation therapy. She said like she looked forward to it every week. And actually she was pursuing a career as a radiation therapist. Oh, wow. That's awesome. You know, so obviously any career in cancer, you know, can be heavy and taxing personally. What do you do for fun and how do you stay positive? Yeah. Um. It's funny because I think a lot of people think oncology is a very sad field, and I just tend to disagree with that. I think there's something very rewarding about being able to help patients. You know, let's say it's a situation where I can't cure their cancer, or I'm not able to definitively treat them, and I'm just palliating, like, say, a bone metastasis that's painful. You know, the impact that you can make on a, a patient's everyday life is, is very meaningful, and, and they truly are appreciative of that. Um, and that in itself is, is very rewarding. It's just a great relationship that you develop with the patients that kind of honestly helps with some of the sadness that comes with this specialty. But I think on a daily basis, we are making a difference and, and that's very rewarding. And then in terms of staying positive, um, you know, I like to do yoga. I try to do yoga a few times a week in the morning before going to work, kind of set my, my mind in the right path. And then just hanging out with, you know, friends and family, doing some social media, uh, <laughs> some advocacy and just some fun with reels. It's kind of like a nice release. Yeah. I want to do a TikTok with you. How do we make that happen? Let's do it. Let's make it happen. <laughs> this is all such great information. And I know that everyone listening will be finding this helpful. Is there any parting advice that you have for newly diagnosed cancer patients? You know, going back to the, the self-advocacy feel free to reach out to your providers and ask questions until you feel comfortable because it is a long journey. It's not easy and you're not alone. No one expects you to be, you know, like a superhero going through this, knowing all the terminology and knowing the right answers. And there's community there, whether it's from your providers or your friends and your family or even online communities. I know the Breasties you know, my best friend got breast cancer when we were interns in um, residency. And, you know, she went through a lot. She went through chemo, radiation, double mastectomy. She, you know, ultimately got through it. And I think that the message is that you're not alone. Seek out, you know, people to be by your side and help you. I'm sure there are people who will support you and 
there are definitely communities out there. It's not. Um, my best friend connected with the Breasties organization. And I, so, you know, I think they're great. And I think that's a great organization. Awesome. Where do you think the field of radiation oncology is going? Like what improvements do you see coming down the pipeline? I think we're heading towards just more and more personalized treatments. You know, one piece is the technology. Uh, you know, now we have linear accelerators, which is the most common radiation machine coming out where you have actually MRI, like onboard imaging, which is very advanced technology, not available in many centers yet. But I think, you know, certainly heading towards more complex imaging, as well as personalized medicine in the sense of the genetics and trying to figure out the reactions of different patients to radiation and what dose is optimal. It's quite complicated depending on the disease state we're talking about because all cancers are their own disease. It's actually kind of one of my pet peeves. The media pushes cancer as one disease when it's really hundreds of diseases. Absolutely. We're pet peeving right with you. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of the direction we're headed in. And also, I think, you know, looking at the disparities in care and equity in cancer care is part of that personalization. I think that's that's where we're headed with radiation. Well, thank you so much for your time. You're an excellent guest, and I hope that everyone listening found this conversation helpful. Thank you so much. This has been amazing, and I really appreciate you guys. Awesome. And if people want to follow you on Instagram, where can they find more from you? My Instagram handle is MandaRivesMD. It's kind of more from my personal account, so that's where the name comes from. But yeah, I'm on um, Instagram. I'm also on Twitter, Amanda Rivera MD, and I'm more than happy to engage with anybody you know that has interest. Let me know about the TikTok. <laughs> Until next time, let's be breasties. If you like what you heard or learned something new, please make sure to leave us a five-star review and subscribe. I've literally always wanted to say that and share with your friends. Make sure you check back every two weeks for more great content. We've got some incredible guests coming up and you won't want to miss them. And follow the Booby Docs across all social media platforms for more of the breast information. A huge thank you to our podcast producers, medical student Christian Cuveta, and our newest addition, podcast producer Andy Cubis, who produced and edited this podcast while going through breast cancer treatment herself. We are forever grateful for her insight and expertise.